If you actually present your work in a really structured way, and you actually do a really good job of presenting that, then what you'll actually find, to your point about puzzling feedback, you'll start to get better feedback. Because again, like whilst it's important just to show your work and it's good just to riff with people and just to go back and forth, how you frame things can change the conversation. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. If you've ever wondered whether design executives still care about craft, wonder no more. Today, I talked to Alistair Simpson, Vice President of Design at Dropbox. Alistair and I talk a lot about craft and how important it is for designers at any level. We talk about the art of the pitch, about how to present work, how to deal with puzzling feedback. This episode is full, not only with tactical advice you can take and apply today, but also with a lot of inspiration. And talking to Alistair really feels like you're talking to a designer who, at his core, truly and deeply cares about the work he does. This is one of my favorite episodes on the show, and there's no need to delay it any further. Alistair Simpson, everyone. Alistair, it's a pleasure to have you on. I first heard about you around 2015 when you were leading design at Atlassian. And back then, in my wildest dreams, I didn't think one day you'll be on the podcast. So, I mean, there was no podcast back then on my future podcast. So yet, here we are. Very excited for today's conversation. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, let's give them a little introduction of your background so they can understand where you're coming from and how you got to where you are today. Sure. And thank you for having me on, Christian. It's the pleasure is all mine. And hello, everyone. My name is Alistair Simpson. I'm English. I live in California and kind of France a little bit, but I spent 12 years in Australia. So that's the kind of weird mix of accent that you can hear. I'm a father of two before I'm anything to do with design and business. I'm a father of two young kids, Frankie, my daughter, who's nine and Buddy, who's six, and they keep me entertained all day long. And I also, interesting fun fact that might come up, I played professional soccer until I was 16 in England, and then I played semi-professional soccer until I was 37. And I always like to say that I retired at 37. I had to give up because I got too many injuries. It's nice. It sounds nice to say you retired. On the design side, I started as a design team of one. I did everything in a small, well, a large publishing company, but a small digital division of this publishing company. I did everything. I built my own usability testing laboratory using software called Moray for anyone who's as old as me who can remember that. I did branding, visual design, interaction design, and then I scaled a small team. Uh, I then have traveled around the world a lot. I spent a couple of years traveling around the world in South and Central America. And then came back, worked in an agency, did cool technology, things like in-flight entertainment, gaming console, app design, lots of different fun things. And then, as you mentioned, Christian, I went to Atlassian where I spent six years there, helped scale the design team from, I was designer number 20 and helped scale the design team to over 300. Uh, I worked on all the tools that Atlassian have, Jira, 
Confluence, Trello, Bitbucket, Soul Street. And then after six wonderful years, I left and I'm now at Dropbox, which is where I am now in California. I run design, brand, research, content design at Dropbox. And also, interestingly, I ran our shift to remote work for two years because we saw that as a design problem. And I've been here almost four years in California. And it's, as I said, a pleasure to be on your show, Christian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I uh, f- f- well, look, first of all, we, we can't go into talking about design without talking a little bit about your um, football career because I actually did not know about that. How did you how did you turn a, a designer from, from a footballer? Is it because football didn't work out or <laughs> what happened there? Oh, totally. No, no, totally. It, it, football was my dream. Up, up until the age of 16, I was at a professional club called AFC Bournemouth, who are now in the Premier League in England. So up until 16, I was there. But at 16 in England, you get your first professional contract. I didn't get a contract, but I then went and played in the kind of minor leagues in England. So if you've been following Welcome to Wrexham on Apple TV, it's the league just below where Wrexham started. That's where I played. So I was playing semi-professional in England. And then I continued when I moved to Australia when I was 25. I continued playing in Australia for an amateur club to start with, but we then went semi-professional into the kind of state leagues in in, in Australia. That was my first passion was football. And linking it a little bit to design and leadership, I mean, I learned a lot from elite sports that I applied to just my career day to day. When people often ask me, what's it like to like train at a professional club or a semi-professional club? And honestly, the answer is it's monotonous and boring because all you're doing is practicing the same drills over and over again, because you're trying to give yourself muscle memory so that when the game comes, you can actually like focus on the moments in the game. So the, the skills are just there, they're innate in you. And so training is all about habit formation, doing the the simple things over and over again. And and then in design, like honestly, in leadership, that is a lot of what the job is. It's doing the simple things. It's turning up to design critique twice a week. It's showing your work early and often. It's doing the simple things over and over again, like speaking to customers, understanding their problem, partnering with stakeholders. It's a lot of simple things and habits that actually then create great experiences. And and so I've honestly, I honestly took a lot from my football career that, that I applied to kind of design and leadership and habit formation is probably the biggest one. I really like what you said there, that uh, even being a designer, it's it's a lot about, I mean, you said being, you know, doing design leadership or being a design leader, but obviously for just being an individual contributor is roughly the same. Yeah, you, most of the time at the end of the day, if someone asks you, what, what have you done today? Probably the same as yesterday, probably the same as the day before. And I think that there's a bit of a lost art, and probably not art, I don't know what the right word is, but this idea of patience and on working on something for a long time until you actually get good. And design education today, maybe we'll get to touch upon this a bit later, but I, I, I just wanted to draw a parallel, tells you that uh, just do this boot camp and when, when it was three months, six months, and then you're a designer. And yeah, you are a designer, but that doesn't necessarily mean you are a, a, a good designer or at the beginning. And And I think the expectations need to be adjusted a little bit there. And the reason people are good at design is because they've done the same things time and time again. They've built those habits, and perhaps not a habit, but perhaps a gut sense for you look at two designs and you think, I think this one works better. And I can't tell you why, but it's probably because you've done that so many times. So I just wanted to draw that parallel. Really interesting. Something that I believe in is that to be good at something, you need to do the same thing over and over for a very long period of time. It's true. It's incredibly true. And the people that I think talk about, or the person I think talks about this a lot is James Clear, like his book, Atomic Habits. And when a lot of people, they'll, for example, they'll train for something like they'll try and run a marathon because that makes quite a good story. 
But actually, if you want to get really good at exercise and managing your weight, and then you should just exercise every day for two years. Like not just for the kind of leading up to the marathon and then ending, like you don't run the marathon and then stop. It's like just being consistent over and over again. And then I think something you touched on, which I believe in design is if you keep doing the same things over and over again, you will learn, you'll make mistakes, you'll build your own intuition. And as a designer, you're also building your taste because I think this is something that we've lost in design is, is having an opinion and having great taste about what great looks like. And again, if you've done it over and over again and seen it many times, then you're building that muscle. And I think that it's people lose the side of that. They think that there's something you can just get very quickly where actually it takes a lot of time and a lot of repetition and just habits. And But people don't necessarily like that because it doesn't make for a good story. They're like, can I just take the pill and actually automatically be faster? No, it just it, it, it takes a lot. If you'd have to look at the life of an individual contributor, I think these are the three most important aspects of your career that you can build these habits around. What, what would those be? What, what would you ha- ask someone who's pretty new to the job focus on as the three main things to try to do on a daily basis to build those habits? The important things for me are know your customer. Okay, so what is the customer problem? Also know your internal customer. So what is the business problem? But know your customer really well. So however you get close to it, there's dozens of methods to get close to customers. Many that people miss are things like shadowing sales calls, shadowing customer support calls. Like we always think about knowing your customer as like doing some fancy piece of research where actually it's like, just go listen to some support calls, see what the customers are saying about your product. Go listen to some sales calls, see how customers are reacting when they're looking, being given a demo to your product. So I think knowing your customer and knowing the internal customer as well, your partners and your stakeholders, I think then just doing the work. If you know the customer and the problem, then what are ideas and solutions that you can actually solve that problem with. So there are dozens of ways that you can solve a problem, but we too often get to like, oh, this is the way. And it's, is it? Like, but how have you actually like thought about this? And then the third one, other than just doing the work on your own, is then sharing your work and showing your work, right? I'm a big believer in iteration and showing work early and often, which again, I think we've lost in design where we try and hold on to things for too long, where I believe that designers should be showing work every 48 to 72 hours. Because if you then get a piece of feedback, you'll, you'll think differently about your solution and you can modify it and you can build on that idea and actually make it better. So I think if you're really pinning me down on three things, it would be the three things like knowing your customer, generating solutions, like coming up with lots of ideas, and then also just showing your work to peers and partners, customers, other designers, and getting feedback and being brave enough to get that feedback. Because again, that's something I think that we've lost is like, you know, it's, it's vulnerable when you're sharing your work, you're putting a piece of your soul up for people to like give you feedback on. And that can be hard, but I think that's the only way to make really great products. So there are two threads that I want to pull on here. This one around feedback and sharing work. There are, there are specific questions I have there, but first of all, I wanted to mention that a few years ago, as I was working for a larger company, I got to sit on a few calls in our customer support center. And I swear that I have learned on those two hours more than I have learned in weeks of just doing other work. And it's so understated how, or under under appreciated just how good of a technique it, it is technique. I don't know if technique is the right word, but yeah, let's talk a bit about sharing work because as you said, it's a very vulnerable 
position to be in. You've done all this work. Sometimes you've easily fall in love with some of your work and then you present it and people just perhaps sometimes like it, perhaps they trash it. Perhaps like one of my colleagues says, I don't hate it, <laughs> which is a very <laughs> neutral way of saying it's okay. How do you deal as an individual contributor with feedback? And then how do you deal with puzzling feedback, meaning feedback you don't necessarily agree with? I'll pull over a few threads of my own there. From my, I mentioned that I traveled around the world and when I was traveling, I took a job and I had to earned a little bit of money when I was traveling and I took a job in a call center. And I always say that my design career started in a call center because if you've never worked in a call center, you can't see people like you do on Zoom nowadays. You literally have a screen in front of you that just says the person's name that's calling in or that you're calling to their account number and that's it. Three seconds later, they're on the phone with you. And sometimes they're angry, sometimes they're happy, but you have to like communicate really effectively with these people. And part of communication is actively listening and asking really good questions and to ask going, you know, the, the five whys is very like common. It's like trying to get to the problem beneath the problem, because quite often when you're in that call center situation, somebody's angry about something, but the problem is actually not that thing. That's the surface issue. The actual problem is deeper down and you have to communicate effectively with them, make them feel safe, make them uh, feel heard, ask good questions to uncover the true need which is actually what we're doing in design, right? A great designer is uncovering the real need from a customer or from the business and then designing a solution that meets that. And so that's the first thing that I think many designers miss is, okay, if I'm sharing my work, how am I communicating that work effectively? And in that call center situation, I also got training on a good sales technique around how you set up the work, make sure people understand the problem, make sure they understand the true need, press on that, and then present your solution in a way that clearly solves for the customer need. And I think if you actually present your work in a really structured way, and you actually do a really good job of presenting that, then you will, what you'll actually find, to your point about puzzling feedback, you'll start to get better feedback. Because again, like whilst it's important just to show your work and it's good just to riff with people and just to go back and forth, how you frame things can change the conversation. And so as a designer, I think it's very important, and this is something I learned from the call center, is you've got to frame your, your pitch, your solution, so that it's very easy to either get great feedback or get people to agree that this is the right solution because I've done the work, I've really understood the problem, this is the best solution based on these three things and the goals that we've got as a company. Therefore, this is why we should be forward with this. So I think your framing of... Uh, when you're presenting work is very important. And I think there's a bunch of techniques, we can probably put it in the show notes that come from sales and sales often gets a, a kind of a bit of a bad rap, but they have some good frameworks around how you set up your work to, or how you, you set up work to present it in the right light so that you again, get the right outcome. Either somebody wants to go ahead with it or somebody wants to question it and ask you really great questions. Now, your question about what do you do with puzzling feedback? Again, I, I would lean on the techniques I've just outlined, which is to listen intently, like listen like you want to learn. That's a really good framework, like actually listen like you want to learn. Because most people, when you're presenting work, you're not really listening to learn. You're like, you can be defensive. You're like, they just don't like the solution, but you actually need to really listen. And then you can mimic back to them what you think you heard 
but then ask for more clarity. A really simple way to, to try to better understand feedback, if, if you don't really understand what it is, is I love that piece of feedback, Christian, but could you just say a little bit more about it? Because you're then inviting that person. You're saying, hey, this is interesting, but say a little bit more. Another technique, a very simple technique is help me understand that piece of feedback a little bit better. Can you say a bit more? And it's just those simple language techniques, again, that I learned decades ago now, can really open up a conversation. And it makes you, like you're asking then open-ended questions and not closed questions where you're just like trying to get a yes or no answer. And I think that can really help really open up conversations and critique. Yeah, so I think the key word there is conversation. Feedback is an invitation to a conversation about your work, isn't it? That's right. You mentioned about these frameworks of framing your work and that you've uh, got inspiration from the sales world. Is there anything more tactical that we could talk about there? What's exactly the framework here that someone listening to this might take and present some work that they're doing today, yeah. tomorrow? The, there's a, yeah, there's a couple. Like there's, I'll give one really good book recommendation, which is Robert Cialdini, The Psychology of Persuasion. That's an excellent book. If you want to know why people buy things, basically, and, and the, the art of how you influence, like that is a, a wonderful book. One of the frameworks that I use is called The Art of the Pitch. And it's essentially six stages. You initially want to set the stage, create awareness, create need, create urgency, evaluate your choices, and then resolve any final risk. And so this kind of, they're the six, and I'll walk through them. So initially, you want to set the stage. What can your audience expect? So again, many people, when they're presenting work, they miss setting it up. They assume that a lot of people have a lot of context about the work. And so you're just setting the stage about this is a two-way conversation. It allows you as a presenter to invite the audience in to understand the context that you're given. And you can do that very simply. The other mistake people make is they spend 20 minutes on the context, which can be far too long. But if you think about very practically, it's okay, I'm going to present a happy state customer flow for a brand new customer onboarding to our product, not someone who's been invited to join an existing product of ours, right? So it's brand new, happy state, okay, somebody brand new onboarding to our product. That simple sentence, like it takes five seconds to say, everyone's okay, great. And now, again, coming to your point about feedback earlier, nobody's going to give you feedback about, oh, what about if you're an existing customer? No, we're not talking about that. Like we've already set the stage, like people have the context. The second stage is like creating awareness. And I think this part again is key. It's like, because many people, when they're sharing work, it's the middle of the week, people are busy and it's easy to switch off in presentations. And so you need to create awareness about what you're trying to show and why it's relevant and important for people to care about. Okay. I think that's what's important is like, why should they care about this problem? Because they're probably designers, they're designing hundreds of different things. Like, why is this thing more important? Or maybe you're presenting to product managers. Like, how do you actually make them care about this problem? And I think you can do that in very relatable ways. And a, and a kind of technique in Cialdini's book is like creating a relatable frame. It's okay. What's, and it's more simply, that's like an analogy. Like, how do you actually make a real world analogy? so that people can really understand the problem. And again, using a concrete example, if you're presenting this onboarding journey to make it relatable, it's okay. If you all remember how overwhelming your first day of your new company felt, lots of information to take in, that's what our customers feel like when they experience our product for the first time. 
Okay. So you're then making it very relatable and creating awareness for the problem that you're trying to solve, right? And so everybody can re relate to that. The next section, again, very important is like creating a need, right? What is the actual need um, for the thing that you're presenting? Because you're going to present a solution in a minute, but you need to make sure that you actually make sure there's a real problem, customer problem that you're actually designing for. And I think there's a great quote from Charles Eames. He says, recognizing the need is the primary condition for design. And again, we forget that. It's like we, we focus on the solution. Here's hundreds of solutions. It's okay, but what's the problem? What's the need? And how do you create that need? Again, you can lean on data here, qualitative, quantitative. You can bring in qualitative samples of customers struggling with onboarding. But you could say 30% of all customer feedback relates directly to complexity in setting up their products during onboarding. And then if you want to double down with the quant qual, it's, and here's a qualitative quote from a customer. It was too overwhelming when I tried to set it up. So you can go with the, the hard data and then the qualitative content. And then it's like, how do you, the next step of it is to create urgency. Okay. So people, your audience, they're like, okay, this is a big problem. There's some data behind it. Got it. How do you then create kind of urgency for why we need to solve this now? And again, there's different ways you can do that, but one example is social proof. People will follow what others do. And so you could reference competitors there who are using a simple, a similar design pattern. You could do loss aversion. There's different psychological ways that you can do that. In this example, it's we lose 90% of customers in the first 30 minutes. Again, that's a big, that's urgent. 90% of customers in the first 30 minutes. That's 3,000 real people. You're really making this kind of urgent for people. And then it's about evaluating your choices. So you're now presenting the work, right? It's okay, here's the work. These are the different choices that we have. And comparing the thing that you're presenting against other alternative work can be clever because if you're presenting different options, it's showing that you've gone broad. It's showing that you've got different solutions here. And if you don't share different options, your audience may be thinking there's another solution that I can think of, right? And so... What you're trying to do, though, is actually compare the two things, but then drive down to where you think the, the opinion, uh, your opinion of actually like what the right thing to solve is. But then if you want to really try and close at the end, it depends where you're at in your process. Maybe that's enough. It's OK, let's discuss the merits of these different solutions like that we've that we shared. Or if you have a strong opinion and you really want to drive to a decision, it's like you could actually in sales, what's known as an assumptive close is you can just say, Hey, this is my opinion based on the data, based on customer testing, this is the best solution. And the assumptive close is like, how let's move forward now. Like here is how we will move forward. Like you're assuming that you're going to move forward with the solution. But again, it depends what your, your goal is. If you're actually trying to generate lots of feedback, you may not want to go to that final step, right? You may just want to open it up for feedback. So that's a very practical way that you can step through and you help Again, I think the key here is that you're setting the work up, you're providing the right context very simply, you're creating analogies and these relatable frames, and then you're presenting work with choices and then trying to drive down to, to a final solution. I think this comes down to storytelling and just be, being better at, at telling stories because oftentimes we know we know as, as humans, we are creatures that respond really well to stories. And I think what I've seen, uh, and I think everybody has been guilty of this at one point or another, is when you're looking for feedback, you just come really not that prepared. You just come with the work and you present it the way it is. But I think what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that before you go into one of these feedback sessions, you might want to prepare a little bit ahead of time. You might want to 
have all your ducks in row. You might want to maybe rehearse once or twice the story you want to tell because it is all about the story rather than here are three mock-ups. Which one do you like the most? That's right. Story, I think, is very powerful. Again, stories have been around for thousands of years of how we share information and communicate information. And again, design critique and sharing work is no different. You're storytelling, you're sharing information. And, and also, not just design critique, when you're, if you're trying to, as a designer, share that there's this really big problem that the company should care about, you have to tell a story. I think that, and what will happen, we talked about habit formation over time, is maybe you're earlier in your career, you may need to prepare before design critique. You may want to actually prepare. And as you said, get your ducks in a row around, okay, this is how I'm going to frame it. This is the context setting. This is the, how I'm going to present the solutions. This is how I'm going to present my recommendation. You may want to prepare that. But what will happen over time, if you're doing that twice a week, which I'm a firm believer that design critique should happen twice a week in modern design organizations, you should be sharing work every 48 hours, basically. If you're sharing work twice a week for 48 weeks in the year, you will need to prepare less and less because you will be prepared as a person and as a designer. And then what happens is, you can more confidently present what should happen as well is that you know the information just more innately. You're not just, as you said, creating a few mock-ups without any context, without an understanding of the customer or the problem. If you're presenting the work all the time and, and you're framing it in the right way, you're going to have to know the problem, know the data, know the trade-offs, know the engineering trade-offs that you might have to make because maybe you're further down the line and you're getting it built. It's like, okay, we wanted to build it this way, but we can't. This is the first iteration. So you're just going to have to know it. And then again, it's just habit formation, time over time, doing it again. And then over time, you should need to prepare less and less for these kind of design critique sessions. Isn't this similar to driving a car? First time you're in a car, oh, there's so many buttons, you need to shift gears, all of these things. Two months later, you're driving to work and you realize, oh, when, how did I get here? Because it's all habit. So it's, I guess it's the same. Another thing that I've had a bit of success with is doing some sort of a pre-mortem, but that's, that's not really the right word. In a pre-mortem, you always ask yourself, what can go wrong here? And if you do that sometimes with feedback, so you know, this is what I want to present. And then you ask yourself before you actually go into that feedback session, what will people push back on if I show them this? And oftentimes, if you just ask yourself that question, or perhaps you pull another designer to the side and say, hey, help me pre-mortem this. What will people push on? What will their reservations be? What that oftentimes does is that it sends you back to the drawing board and it, it allows you to adjust and optimize your design work a little bit so that when you actually do go and present the work, you've eliminated that feedback because you've already seen that it was coming. So th that's another little tactical thing that I've done. I think pre-mortems are great. We run those at Dropbox and uh, I used to run them at Lassian because again, they're forcing you to think through what could go wrong with this, right? As you said, how will people push back? And then what it does is, because this is something that I think is also important as a designer is you're being curious about not just like how it might go well, but how it might not go well. And that curiosity is incredibly important for how you, again, build great products, understand your customers, understand the business, understand all the constraints that you need to design for. And as I said, it, you can do very formal pre-mortems that take a lot of time, or as you said, just walk up to another designer. Hey, like really quick context. What do you think? Poke some holes in this for me, right? Like before, before you're going into the formal critique session. How do you get good at this? <laughs> if, you're come, if you're just coming into it and you have no idea about these things, 
is there any way of getting good at this fast or is the answer just you just need to do it and you just need to do it and do it again and again similar to what we were talking about earlier and you're just going to get better you, you need to do it again and again i think I, th I actually think there is a bit more to it than that but again if i look back on when i played football like between the age of probably six to 16 i was at various teams football trainings at least four times a week at least so i was training at least four times a week often six with two games on a weekend and so that is if you think about that over a decade right because that was six to 16 and but then eventually six to 37 like how how i played it's so much habit formation right and it takes a lot of time because when i was six i was i was I obviously had some natural talent of football but i wasn't that good like, because yeah, i was six right? I didn't, but over time like it you build that and i think and then when I look at my design career, when I started, I mentioned as a design team of one, I was designing in the tool at the time was OmniGraffle and then Photoshop. And we, we was just in designing every day. And then I built my own usability testing lab and I brought customers in every week. And so it was just habit formation. You were doing the things and making mistakes. But then I think, I think if I ra raise that up a little bit, what I was doing in both of those things, other than habit formation, was I was very curious because when I started my career as a designer, I was making and doing, which I think you have to do. You have to make, do. But I also was curious. I was educating myself on the side, reading every book I could, going to design conferences because this, these are the days before things like Behance and Dribble and all the things. Like, But like going to design conferences, reading books. We had the start of newsletters. I got mentors. Like I would find people and again, it's amazing what happens when you just ask people, hey, like I'm starting my design career. Can you help me? They're like, sure. Because often it's the greatest thing that people can ask you is like for help because then you're saying, hey, you're an expert in your field. I would love like a piece of time with you. Like, and people are quite, often quite generous. And so I was sought out mentors. And I think then that habit, curiosity, finding experts to give you feedback like over time like you'll then just build up these muscles and you'll get better at these things and i think you obviously have to have some natural talent but natural talent alone without hard work doesn't do it right but if you actually have talent and you work really hard you will over time get better at these skills yeah thanks for building uh, upon that I, I think that's very important to reiterate that as you said, even if you're talented, it still takes hard work over time and you just need to stick to it. You, you do. I think the only thing I'd add as well is we've already touched on this, but often designers ask me, they're like, what skills, it, what prototyping tool should I be learning? I'm like, how are you honing your communication skills? And they're often like, well, I, don't, I don't know. I'm like, I know that learning prototyping skills and Figma and yes, you have to be a master in those tools because that's the job. But how you're learning communication and how to have crucial conversations and how to listen to learn, that is going to take you a lot further, right? How you influence people through communication, that will take you a lot further in your career if you combine that with the hard skills of Figma and prototyping and design. And so I think I often push people to think a little bit more outside of the box. And we've mentioned sales frameworks. I'm like, learn about sales frameworks, learn about psychology. This is like very important as you're working with cross-functional partners that you can communicate and influence them in meaningful ways. Let's stay on that topic of, of some of these soft skills that are important as a designer. You've already, we've already talked a lot about 
pitching and communication. You've mentioned quite a few times curiosity, another important one. What else is worth mentioning when it comes to these soft skills? What else should you be working on as a designer other than learning to prototype and uh, learning to build design systems in Figma? I think it's, it's still related to craft, but it's like honing your taste as a designer. The problem that I think I've seen in the industry is, this is just generally in the industry, is that we often, whilst we need to, so this is a very fine line, so I don't want to cut, like, you need to listen to customers, you need to understand the data from your product, how people are using your product. You need to do all of that good stuff. It's a very important input. But what we've lost is, I think, the ability to, to use our judgment and our taste level as a designer, as an expert craftsperson, and have an opinion about what we think the right or a great solution is. Because what often happens is we're like, oh, we'll A-B test that. And it's okay, like you can, maybe this is something that you need to A-B test, but what is your opinion as a craftsperson, as a designer? Like what is the, the best solution, knowing your, your customer and knowing the data that you have available today? Because what, what can often happen is you just start to A-B test everything. And then you actually end up with something that is not coherent as a whole, right? And so I think that the skill that designers need to continue to hone is their level of taste and judgment and intuition. And you hone that through various ways, going to art galleries, reading philosophy, actually going and talking to other master craftsmen, going and looking at some of the older trades like industrial design, and how crafts were actually made back in the day to really understand the level of detail that goes into something and why something is really well made. And that, I think, level of then taste and judgment that you will start to build up will help you just make better products and make better intuitive decisions as a designer. So we've gone from a lot of years ago where design wasn't really seen as a function of business to now where I think a lot more businesses are in tune with the fact that design can make a difference because we are measuring a bit more what the output of, of our work does uh, for the business. And then we're, we're at this place right now where I think design has to move some sort of a needle because otherwise what's the point of design? What you're saying is that perhaps that's not the only thing that should matter. What I'd like to ask is you find yourself in a company and then obviously the company cares about metrics. They do want to do A-B tests because, hey, if you can improve the conversion rate by 0.1%, that is X dollars a year, which is a very reasonable ask to make. But how do you then as a designer who has taste, who has this craft, can push against that? Not necessarily push against that, but can counteract that by saying, yeah, 0.1% is great, but I think we should do this other thing because it's, you know, it, what would you say? Is it more tasteful? Is it more, what would your arguments be in a way against, you know, a PM or against a business that really wants this 0.1%? The honest answer is you might be in the wrong company because the company has to care, number one, right? The company has to care about quality and customer centricity and craft. The big poster child is obviously Apple. They care very deeply about how something is made and they're still run like a big machine, a big business, but they still have a high degree of quality, craft, taste in the products that they make. Airbnb is another one, more in the digital age right now, where they are hyper-focused on their customer and building amazingly crafted products because they believe that over the long term, if you focus on building the best product, that will lead to the right business outcomes. And so I think 
That is the honest answer. Some companies may not operate that way. They may be looking for marginal gains. Like they may be hyper-focused on just small growth tactics to inch out like small kind of marginal gains on their product and conversion rates. And there's, there are, here's the thing, there are times when you actually need to do that. But there are also times where you need to take bigger swings and you need to actually, where it may not be the right thing to just optimize this tiny thing. And actually, if you design something uh, more tastefully, more highly crafted that really solves the customer need, you're actually, instead of getting 1%, you might get 10%. You might be able to 10x this. And you actually have to think bigger. And again, this is where you may be in the wrong company because it may be that the company doesn't want to think bigger, right? However, it may be that the thing that you're trying, the, the problem you're trying to solve, maybe you don't need to 10x that thing. Maybe it is right just to optimize that small loop. But then what are the other bigger problems that you need to go and look at? And how do you actually make bigger progress on the overall holistic customer experience by actually thinking about it in a different way? Don't start with the like, oh, we need 1% here. Start with what's the customer problem? Start with what's the business goal? And then if the business goal is 1%, then how do you add a zero to that? Let's make it 10%. How would we actually go much bigger? And then you start to think more creatively. You would start to open the aperture for what's possible. And again, it may be the company or it may be the problem is an optimization problem or it may just be that you need to think differently about that. So I'm wondering how storytelling plays into this because perhaps some people sit in a business, they look at numbers all day, they don't have a connection necessarily to the people using the product. So then it's harder for them to relate to them versus someone who can come in and, and use proper storytelling to explain to them how a better quality product might actually reach those numbers, but in, different, in a different manner. So perhaps storytelling also plays a role in that. It certainly is. And something that we're doing at Dropbox, it's been a ton of work, but I think the design team is very engaged and happy because we're leading the charge on what the story for our customers and for the product will be next year. And so I'll, I'll break it down. We write, we use narratives at Dropbox, which I think are excellent. It's an Amazon method where you diagnose the problem, you define what the obstacles and the opportunities are, you then create some guiding policies around how you might solve those obstacles and then a set of actions like for the following year. And those narratives are rooted in the customer, they're rooted in data, so they're very customer-centric, very business-centric. But then what we've, those narratives generally span about a 12-month period or a three-year period. And what we've then done is we've taken those narratives as a design organization and We've worked with our marketing partners to say, okay, we've got a couple of releases next year in 24. We're working on a, a biannual release cycle. And so we're visualizing that in the form of a story or a marketing page that a customer may see. And we're using real imagery from the product about how we might define the best experience for our customer that we've from the problems that we've defined in that narrative. And then we're actually working with marketing to say, these are the value propositions. This is the message that we'll send to customers. And so it's a form of storytelling that's been very effective because it takes a lot of words, which are excellent words, and it's very thoughtful, but it turns it into something, a visual story about, okay, this is what a customer will see on our landing page. This is the value proposition they'll see so that we can see the theme between the two launches so that we can see that there's a, a strong through line. And so again, it's, it's getting us ahead, it's visualizing the roadmap because we can then take that and break it down into a very linear type roadmap. And it's also... The other thing that this has done for us is that it's, we're starting from a place of what's possible, not from a place of like, 
here's, let me tell you the hundred constraints that we have to work around. We're being mindful. We're not being blue sky about the, the experiences that we're trying to ship. We're working with engineering, but we're pushing the boundaries. We're not starting from the, as I said, the hundred constraints and then working back from that. And I like this idea of thinking what's possible. It reminds me of an example. I think it's, it was Microsoft decades ago that started from this idea of putting a computer on every desk in America. I think it was something like that. And that's a very different problem statement to start from versus saying we need to lower the price to $1,000 per computer and we need to make sure Word and Excel are on it or something like that. The, the statement is very different. One of them is about the story and the place we're going together as a team. The other one is more about what can we do today? And it, it's, it, it feels much more, I don't know, much, much more rigid, I guess. It's the other thing that it does because as a leader, your job is to set the tone for yep. the organization. And if you're setting the tone with the price needs to be this, then you're immediately putting constraints on the team. If you're setting the tone around what's possible and you're being inspirational, it's amazing what problems people will solve when they feel inspired, right? Because I'm sure there's a lot of challenges to get to what we're proposing to ship next year, but people are inspired by it. They see it. They're like, yeah, I want to make that. That's what I want to ship for our customers. And you're then able to motivate people to do more than they think that they're capable of which I think, again, is the job of a leader. And it can be the job of design, really, because you can show what is possible and then people will be motivated to try and go after that goal versus just doing something incremental, doing something small. And I think that's our job. So you mentioned leading and the roles of a leader over the past 10 minutes or so. You've talked a lot about taste and craft. So let's combine those two. How do you on a daily basis lead the craft? There's small things and big things. Some of the small things are just, I'm well known in the Dropbox for having a very large t-shirt and sneaker collection, but all of them are highly crafted objects. And it shows that I care about what I'm wearing and that I have a level of taste around that. And I think that's a small signal, but it's an important signal, right? It's, we do, again, another small thing. At the end of every week, we have a Slack bot that, asks all of my leadership channel to share something that's inspired them from a craft perspective this week. And so people share multiple different things. Like this week I shared a vinyl record that's in the shape of a heart. I mentioned I got married last week. So I got married last week and we had a vinyl record that was in the shape of a heart. But somebody had cared enough to make this piece of vinyl into a heart shape and it actually plays on a record player. It's wild. But again, so these small things where you can show that you care about these, about craft is very important. Bigger things, um, you have to, again, I talked about setting the tone, but my job I see as a leader has been to start the movement and show that from the top down that I care about craft and that it matters to me. And so I spent, we had our, all of our designers together in February in Austin, Texas, and we had a whole two-day event around craft what it means to me, what it means to the team, why it's important. But the main message was, it's important to me. You have my blessing that I care about this, but really I can't do this on my own. I need all of the 150 people in my design org to start the movement from the ground up. Like they need to get on board. And so your job as a leader is to start that movement, set the tone, show what great looks like, but then inspire other people to take up the baton and actually make the change that you need in the company. And so that message, I think, is important. And I followed that message up. I share 
top of mind posts, which are like internal blog posts every month. And I talk about craft and I talk about the progress that we're making and I talk about the things that matter. And so there's some of the bigger things. And then also I'm looking at end-to-end customer journeys. We follow the see, buy, try, use. So it's okay, I see it on the website. I try it. Okay, so that's onboarding. I then buy it and then I use the product, right? Okay, so see, try, buy, use. I actually look at all of the end-to-end customer flows that are shipping in our two launch moments following year, like for a full day every other week. So every other week for a whole day, all I'm designers are coming in and presenting, this is the progress on the onboarding states. This is the progress on our preview screen, whatever it may be. And so literally like eight hours every two weeks, that is all I'm doing. And again, that's a big message to send to a, a, a design organization that I care enough that I'm looking at this. Every, I'm talking about like small details and it's not, I don't see that as micromanagement i see that you're showing that you care about the details and you're again so long as you're framing your feedback in the right way it shouldn't come across as micromanagement it's just that you care about the details because you want the product to be great so therefore how do you share that with someone so they can improve the details and so i think there's small things and big things around craft and taste i think some of the best design leaders i've ever worked for all had one thing in common, that they had differences, some were good at this, some were good at that, but they all had one thing in common, and that that was that they were able to inspire the entire design organization. And since we've talked about football a little bit, I'm just watching the Beckham documentary recently, and I'm I'm a big (laughs) football fan myself. Over time, you've watched uh, inspirational leaders like Paolo Maldini and John Terry and Carles Puyol and all over the world or over Europe mostly. I've watched, and, and you see all these leaders, and really a lot of what they do is that they inspire. And The interesting part is that they don't inspire through words, they inspire through doing themselves. That's right. I guess it's what you're talking about here. It's just inspiring through through showing that you care. Yeah. It is because linking it to influence, how do you influence cross-functional partners? Show, don't tell, right? Like that's the biggest thing, right? And how we've, we just had a big launch in October and the product has changed dramatically, the Dropbox product. And it's, very like the web surface, very well designed, integrated workflows, high care for visual craft, interaction design. And people that asked me like, how did you get this on the roadmap? How did you, and it was like, we showed, like we did the work of creating like better quality design. We spent the time and then we were showing that to our partners and again, inspiring them that this is like, this is what it could be. How do we make this? We need your help. Like, how do we make this happen? And so I think that is very important. Um, that showing, don't tell, not telling, and leading through action. Because I'm not pushing pixels day to day, but I am in Figma files, right? I am showing that I care, right? And it's again, you have to walk the line. You don't want it to become micromanagement and a fear-based culture or anything like that. But actually, being in the details and being in the files—that's just showing that you care. That's showing that you care about the details and that you're willing to put the work in with the team to actually make it better. On that same topic of inspiring others, it's uh, not so much only at uh, a leadership level, but also as an individual contributor. I I have countless of examples of showing what's possible to someone who doesn't really care that much, let's say to an engineer. But once they've seen that, once they've seen where you could take it, they're suddenly much more likely to 
appease you when it comes to a little animation here or little things here because you managed to inspire them. I think that's one of the power that we have as designers is that because our work is so visual, we can put examples that others have given or ideas or thoughts into something tangible and inspire people through that. That's one of the superpowers that we have as designers, I guess. It is. It's interesting because I, I think for a long time we've shied away from using that. We've been like, oh, well, I don't want to just be seen as the person that's like visualizing something. And it's, I don't think we are, it's, but that is our superpower. And as you said, it can motivate people. And the best design relationships I've ever had and I see in my teams are where designers and engineers mainly, but designers, product managers, engineers, the, the kind of core triad, the core, kind of core triad are really tight and they're doing exactly what you're saying. They're like in each other's details. Hey, like engineer, the animation is not quite right. Like, how do we make this? Like, here's a prototype. And again, if you show it, you can inspire people. They'll go above and beyond. They'll be motivated to do more than what they think is capable. But also you're just showing that you care and you're partnering with them and you're close to the details. The inverse is the worst teams where it's like a handoff process. It's like, here's the file. And it's like, nobody's inspired because they don't know the why behind it. They don't understand what you're trying to achieve. They just see a file. And I think that tight partnership it can go so far in building like better experiences. Yeah, in my experience, I've heard oftentimes designers say, my engineers don't care so much about the end product. In my opinion, that's very rarely the truth. The truth is that perhaps you haven't done a good enough job at, at inspiring them. Because I've also seen and, and, and been part of teams where if you are able to inspire your cross-functional partners, you have an engineer who comes and says, I think the experience for a user could be better here. It's stuff that you hear normally from a designer. You can hear that from an engineer if you bring them on board as to why it's important. So in being able to inspire, I find that to be a very good sort of soft skill. It's that inspiration, but it's also starting with why. There's a great book, Simon Sinek, Start With Why. If you can get people to really understand why this is important, and it comes back to that communication framework, right? Create urgency. Like, why is this thing important to like really solve well? And then you can also inspire them with a great solution. That's where magic's going to happen because people are like, wow, like I understand why this is important. I see an amazing solution. Let's like try and move mountains to make this thing reality for our customers and for our business. Alistair, if we were to sit here in 10 years and have a conversation and you were to say, Christian, this last decade in design has been absolutely amazing. What would have had to happen for you to say that to me 10 years from now? I'd like to think that 70% of what I just said is still accurate and 30% is wrong because I want to keep learning and developing as a leader and as a person. And so I think I, I want to keep learning new things. And so I would like to look back personally in a decade and be like, all oh, right, I learned something and something I said was not right. I think that that would be important. That's just my own growth mindset of trying to continually learn. I think from a designed shape, I've, there's a couple of things. One is it would be amazing to see more design CEOs and design founders. I actually think that would be very interesting. Not because I think design is special. It's just more designers have a different way of thinking about problems and a different way of like framing problems and approaching problem solving. And so I think having more designer CEOs and designer founders in the kind of Fortune 500 would be like a very interesting and inspiring thing. The second would probably be just that we've, as designers, we've really got really gotten back to our roots of craft. And this is one, again, it's a bit more personal, but that we we have to, as designers, we have to understand the business, how it makes money, be a good partner to cross-functional disciplines. I think that's just, 
like you mentioned, design is now more respected in organizations. And so with that respect, we have to be good cross-functional partners, understand the business in general. But the thing that I think we've lost in the last five, 10 years that I think we need to get back to is just then, yeah, understanding the business, being a good partner, but going deep on our craft and just inspiring. Like we've talked about this, like being curious and then inspiring with really great solutions and leading through design. I think that that would be a really good mark of success in 10 years. We've got a little tradition at the end of the podcast. Uh, we, I keep saying we, I don't know why I say we, it's just me. Um, I ask the same two questions to everyone. And the first one is, what is one action that you think led to your success that in a way or another separated you from some of your peers? One action, I don't like to compare because I think everyone is unique and special in their own way. But I think certainly something though that I did early on was... I just had this curiosity to learn about design and different disciplines. And I then just went and did the work. I think because of my roots in football, like I understood that it was just habits, doing the work, showing up. And even the roots I have today, like I exercise still every day. Not every day is a great exercise routine, but I turn up and I do the work. And so I think that curiosity and doing the work was really pivotal early on in my career. The last question is, what are we not talking about enough when it comes to design? I would probably say craft still. Like, I just think there's been a natural tendency over the last decade to, hey, it's a process, it's a double diamond, anyone can do it. Or it, or there's been a natural tendency, because I've even written about this, of understanding the business as a design leader. And I do believe in that. But I think that with those shifts, we've lost the deep focus on craft and the deep focus on leveraging our craft and leading through great design and great taste. And so I don't think we're talking enough about that. It's very fascinating for me to see that in one hour conversation that we've had, someone who is very high up in an organization as a designer still cares so much about craft. And I think that should be an inspiration that craft is not only something you should care about when you're contributing on the ground and designing in Figma every day, but also something that you can keep with you when you go higher up as well. So thank you for that. This has been a great conversation. Where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or read what you're writing or any sort of places they could go to? Mainly LinkedIn nowadays. Uh, I am still on X, but I don't, I'm not active on there. So LinkedIn, I, I have a lot of older articles on Medium. I haven't written externally for a little while. I write internally at Dropbox, but yes, LinkedIn is the best place. LinkedIn it is. We'll put that in the show notes so everyone can find you. Alistair, this has been a great conversation. Again, thank you very much for being part of the podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I think people will enjoy listening to it. I always have a great time sharing stories and anecdotes because I genuinely believe that we're all solving the same problems. And the more stories that we can share about how we're solving them, the more effective we'll all get. So thank you for having me on, Christian. It was a, a, a true pleasure. If you've listened this far... Thank you. I appreciate you and I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.